like to thank you all for your patience this morning. Uh, and we'll be, it was planned that how we would change backwards even during the, the, the sermon, so I don't know how that will work. Will that work? We'll hope for it. <laughs> I wonder if many of you are familiar with that book. There's quite a few. Anybody... Anybody heard of the series, Horrible Histories? Right, well, I don't know, those of you who who follow Horrible Histories will know the first one was published uh, in 1993, and by the end of 2011, over 60 titles had been published under this theme, Horrible Histories. And uh, people uh, who read these books love them apparently and I, I had a good read at one of them uh, yesterday and I must say the, the little bits that are slipped in there you would never read in ordinary history books and I enjoyed them very much indeed. It was all about the Tudors and uh, it was about Christians trying to decide who was a witch and who wasn't a witch and how you'd be tied up and if you when they put the mostly ladies into the water and if uh, they floated they would be guilty and then they were taken out and executed if they didn't float they were innocent but they drowned you know <laughs> but uh, it was amazing and uh, read all these books about horrible histories Well, I want to remind you that the Romans carried out what could only be described as a horrendous event and a horrible event in history. And we were remembering this last week and I referred to it this morning talking to the children when Pontius Pilate led Jesus out, a broken man by that time physically. Behold the man, he said, and treating him with utter in total contempt in front of the crowd who had welcomed him some days earlier. And then an innocent man, because you also remember that to get Jesus condemned, they had to bribe witnesses to tell lies. And so they condemned an innocent man to die an excruciating death. It's been described, crucifixion has been described as the worst possible means of death and execution. Now I don't know, I've never been there so I don't know, but that's how it is described. And when it happened and Christ was on the cross, there was great celebrations because people thought that the witness of God was finished and Jesus was ended, his life was over. But as you and I know this morning, they were wrong and the Jesus arose leaving his robes signifying he had moved out to a new life and there he was, the tomb was empty. But the fact, and naturally and understandably, I think some people doubted about this story of the resurrection of Jesus. And even in the Gospel of Luke we have a wonderful example of two people who doubted the story. The two women who were at the tomb, in particular Mary, had run back to the disciples with this wonderful message, Jesus has been raised to life again. And these two disciples of Jesus, it could have been a husband and wife, it doesn't tell us whether it was two men or two women, it just says two disciples. It could have been husband and wife, and they were walking seven miles from Jerusalem to their home village of Emmaus. And uh, when they were walking, this stranger fell in line with them and joined their company. And what he discovered was there were these two people were desperately sad. 
desperately sad. And the reason for their sadness was, of course, shown in their faces. And that can be the case. You look at some people someday and you, you say to them, you're not looking great. Is everything okay? And you can tell. And this stranger looked at the faces of these two people and he could see sadness written all over them. And he wanted to know what had led to the feeling of depression. And so what happened was they told him. And when you go home today, if you were to read this passage of scripture in Luke chapter 24, you would discover that these disciples, their memories had failed them. You remember that they had walked with Jesus for many years, three years in fact, and listening to him talking all about his life and his death. And we read these words, what things he said make you so sad? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And it says, we, the chief priests and our rulers, handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. Now, what, what they concentrated on there was the crucifixion. But what they forgot was, whenever Jesus talked about his crucifixion, he didn't stop there. He always continued. And the message of his crucifixion was followed by the message of his resurrection. Jesus said that and after three days, he will rise again. But these disciples were very sad because their memories failed them. In their minds, they could only envisage the cross, Christ on the cross, taken down, buried, the stone rolled... And that was all they remembered. And the dynamic message that he was going to rise again was forgotten. Their memories had failed them. Secondly, they had mistaken views about Jesus. It says here about Jesus, he was a prophet, powerful in word and in deed. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They had these mistaken views. They wanted Jesus not to come into Jerusalem on a donkey, but to come in on a white horse. They wanted to see Jesus not dispel the forces of darkness, the invisible powers, but defeat the Roman Empire. And so they had these mistaken views about Jesus. And thirdly, their minds were closed to the truth. These women had run from the grave to meet the men, to tell them about Jesus, rose from the risen from the dead, and their minds were closed. They didn't believe what these people said. In verse 22, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And so they refused to believe. Their minds were actually closed to the, the truth. And as far as they were concerned, these first messengers of the resurrection spoke absolute nonsense. Now my friends, I wonder if we make the same mistakes in regarding to history, and particularly history as it relates to Jesus Christ. Do you know something? I mentioned at the beginning of the service that there has been long, prolonged discussion and study on the manuscript evidence for the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And there is no other person in ancient history who has more documentary evidence for his life and his ministry than Jesus Christ. No other. 
You have for Julius Caesar something like 10 ancient manuscripts and they date back to, date to centuries after he was risen or he was alive. With Jesus, you have thousands of ancient manuscripts which are still in museums and libraries in different parts of the world. The first one is the second century referring to Jesus from the scriptures. Passages of the scriptures that have been kept alive. And if we want to disbelieve the ancient records about Jesus, I want to suggest this morning we need to burn millions of books because there's more historical evidence in manuscript form for Jesus than there is for any other character in ancient history. Think of it. There are thousands of people out there today and they're studying for degrees in ancient history. But why are they studying degrees in ancient history and yet inconsistently so many of them refuse to acknowledge the reality of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus? Their degrees don't make any sense if they repudiate and de deny and discount the existence of Jesus. Millions of pounds spent making films about fictional characters because there's no documentary evidence adequate to explain their existence as there is for Jesus. And I find as a Christian, I find this very difficult to understand the double standards, how people will take these ancient characters from history like Julius Caesar, write books, set degrees, dissertations, thesis on this man, and yet they will do write nothing with the Lord Jesus Christ. They will write him off. And yet, my friends, the fact that we are sitting here this morning on the 20th of April 2014 bears witness itself to the power of the resurrected Christ because the very calendar that we date our lives by is centers around Jesus Christ. And here we're going to make our first attempt to listen to uh, something I want you to hear on the record. Now, this is by Johnny Cash. And I, I hope you'll. F Pardon? <laughs> Thank you. That's not very nice. He was a wonderful singer. And he's singing in heaven with an even better voice. So here we go. Can we have here it? Here was a man. A man who was born in a small village, the son of a peasant woman. He grew up in another small village. Until he reached the age of 30. He worked as a carpenter. And then for three years he was a traveling minister. But he never traveled more than 200 miles from where he was born. And where he did go, he usually walked. He never held political office. He never wrote a book. He never bought a home. He never had a family. He never went to college and he never set foot inside a big city. But yes, here was a man. Though he never did the things that you'd usually associate with greatness, here was a man. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except through the divine purpose that brought him to this world. And while he was still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. Most of his friends ran away. One of them denied him. One of them betrayed him and turned him over to his enemies. 
Then he went through the mockery of a trial and he was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And even while he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property that he had in the world, and that was his robe. When he was dead, he was taken down from the cross and laid in a borrowed grave provided by compassionate friends. More than 19 wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race, our leader in the column to human destiny. And I think I'm well within the mark when I say that all of the armies that ever marched, all of the navies that ever sailed the seas, all of the legislative bodies that ever sat, and all of the kings that ever reigned, all of them put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth so powerfully as that one solitary life. Here was a man. What made him so special was, of course, he was the God-man. And he lived, and he died, and he rose. And this morning he should be at the heart of our worship and the heart of our lives. Look very quickly with me at the dynamic ministry of Christ as he met these two people walking along the road, their heads filled with doubts. He drew near to them. He was there with them. They didn't realize it. This person that they were doubting about was there right beside them. They didn't know it. He got them to talk about their doubts. We all know this word in psychology today, catharsis, so important when something goes wrong in our lives. We need to talk it out and share it and work through our problems with others. And Jesus gave them this cathartic experience. Tell me exactly how you're feeling. He wants honesty. He doesn't want us to pretend to believe when we're not really finding it like that. He then turned to the scriptures, the word of God, because that's the key to finding Jesus. And he presented the full picture, his resurrection. He didn't stop at the cross. He went on to talk about the resurrection. He revealed himself to them as they walked along the road. They said, afterwards he said it was like our hearts were warming within us as he talked and he shared from the Bible. Jesus was working in their lives. And my dear friends, I stand here today and I am convinced that Jesus remains the same. And he understands the problems of faith. And if you're in church this morning and you have a difficulty getting your head around the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, he died but rose again, that's understandable. And what's more, God understands how you're feeling. God understands that struggle of doubt. That's why this story is included in the Bible. So that we could meet God and we could say to him, look, I can't get my head around this. I'm struggling to believe. And he will work with us as he did with the people. He's willing to come alongside us. And this is for any of us this morning who have doubts. He's willing to come alongside us. He understands us. We're all important to him. Every one of us here. He will listen to us as we share our doubts and our questions. He's not wanting yes men. He's wanting people who will come and say, this is my struggle. Help me to understand. And he will. 
He wants us to read his word and Bible with a truly open mind. And when we do that, he will reveal himself to us. I remember when I was in the faith mission, I met this guy called David Thompson. He had been brought up, his parents uh, ran a public house. He had been brought up with absolutely no faith at all, none at all. He started to work in an engineering shop in Lone Head, Midlothian. And there was an amazing Christian man there. And he witnessed to David. And there came a moment in David's life when he went home one evening and he went into his room and he said to God, I don't know what to think. I don't know how to think. But I want you to know, I'm, I'm curious. Are you there? Are you real? And you know, before he left that room, he was a changed man. Because Jesus knew all about his doubts, but Jesus met with him and ministered to him. And David Thompson went on to be a great, faithful servant of God. My friends, if you're here this morning with doubts about Jesus, tell him about those doubts. Ask him to show you the truth and he will come alongside you and help. Millions have found this to be true. Here's two examples. I want to introduce you to two of Ireland's influential characters of the 20th and the 21st century. You all know, probably, if you've read the Narnia stories, you'll all know Clive Staples Lewis. And you'll know this man, Paul David Hewson, and uh, otherwise known as Bono from the U2 group. Now, I want to tell you what happened. They're both well known for their Christian faith. C.S. Lewis wrote many books, and one of them is called Surprised by Joy. And in that book, he gives how he became a Christian. He was working in Cambridge University in Magdalen, is it Oxford? Magdalen? In Cambridge, Oxford. He was in Oxford, and he was struggling with to keep up with his studies because he was being haunted by the voice of Jesus in his life. And this is what he wrote. Whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. C.S. Lewis didn't want to know Jesus. He didn't believe in him. And then in 1929 he says, In Trinity term I gave in and admitted God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, look at the language, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. He had been an atheist, as I've said here. He was a combative atheist. He used to argue for the cause of atheism. He became a convinced theist, a person who says, well, there is a God, but he's not personal. He became that, and from that he became a committed Christian. And his books and his life witness to Jesus Christ. And if you want to learn, read books like Mere Christianity and others in the catalogue of Lewis's book. And what about the lead singer Bono? Well, he was born in what we would call in Ireland a mixed marriage. And in that culture, back then particularly, it was very controversial. And uh, he saw what, was being, what had happened as he grew up between his mother and father because of the pull of both sides of the religious divide. And that made him quite cynical about organized religion. And this is how he described what happened in Ireland. The religion, religion cut my people, the people of Ireland, in two. 
He sang in a non-denominational evangelical singing group called Shalom for two years. And in U2 there were three, two other Christians in that particular group. His Christian faith has been influential, but because of his background, he has found it difficult to get involved in mainstream church. Now, there's a man in Ireland known as Gay Byrne, and he's very famous. He does loads of interviews, and I want you to listen to a short excerpt from Gay Byrne's interview. I look to the scripture. to the scriptures for poetic truth, um, as well as the sort of historical stuff I'm, I'm, I'm in, interested in. And of course there was a hyster historical Jesus. No, I'm talking about God. Oh, right. And, and do well, you I see I'm the, the, per the person of Christ is my way to understand uh, God. Do you pray? Yes. To whom or what do you pray? To in Christ. A way? To Christ. Yeah. And, and what do you pray for? Pray to get to know um, the will of God, because then the prayers have more chance of coming true. I mean, that's the thing about prayer, isn't it? I mean, we don't do it in a very lofty way in our family. There's just a bunch of us on the bed, usually. We have a very big bed in our house. And all our, we've prayed with all our kids. We, we you know, we just, we, we read the scriptures, we pray. It's not even regular. Sometimes if we go to church on a Sunday, we go when the church has ended and we'll just go in on our own as a family. For peace and quiet. For peace and quiet. And we'll pray, usually about people that we know who are struggling with something. Um, illness so, or so whatever. So then, what or who was Jesus as far as you're concerned? I think it's, the, it's a defining question for a Christian, is who was Christ. And, and I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher or, a, a, you know, because actually he went round saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God or he was not. No, no, nuts. Nuts, yes. Forget yes. rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like, I mean, Charlie Manson type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just, I don't believe it. I, so I therefore it follows that you believe he was divine. Yes. And therefore it follows that you believe that he rose physically from the dead. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I've no problem with miracles. <laughs> I'm living around them. I am one. So, so when you pray then, you pray to Jesus. Yes. The risen Jesus. Yes. And you believe that he made promises which will come true. Yes. I do. To me, there's a Christian. He believes in the risen Christ. He finds a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's Staple C.S. Lewis, a real philosopher, Bono, a real entertainer, and yet both of them born again of the Spirit of God. And I want to say to you this morning, these men started off with struggles. 
they opened their minds and their lives to Jesus. And their lives were changed. I want to finish with this one slide. These people were so excited. When Jesus made it real to them, he broke bread and they must have seen the marks of the nails in his hand. And suddenly they realized, it is him. He is risen. And they got so excited, despite having walked the seven miles, they then ran the seven miles back to Jerusalem, overjoyed at meeting Jesus. That's Easter. And my question to all of us this morning is this. Have we had such an experience? As we sit in church this morning, have we become aware that Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, who rose again and who lives today, wants to come into your life as your personal saviour and your friend? Have you had such an experience? I remember growing up with this man, Malcolm Muggeridge. He was a communist. He was a cynic in relation to Christianity. He became a Christian. In St. Giles Cathedral, on the 14th of January 1968, he preached a sermon called Another King. And in the last paragraph of that sermon, he talks about the road to Emmaus and how he was doing a program for the BBC on the Holy Land. And he said as he and his colleague walked along the seven miles on the road to Emmaus, he said, as my friend and I walked along like Cleopas and his friend, we recalled as they did the events of the crucifixion and its aftermath in the light of our utterly different and yet similar world. Nor was it a fancy that we too were joined by a third presence. And I tell you that wherever the walk and whoever the wayfarers, there is always this third presence ready to emerge from the shadows and fall in step along the dusty, stony way. Do you know him? Not Muggeridge. Do you know the Jesus Muggeridge? Once a communist, then a cynic against Christianity, but then a Christian. Do you know Jesus Christ. Have you had such an experience? He wants to transform our lives like he did with C.S. Lewis, like he did with Paul David Hewson, like he did with Malcolm Muggeridge, like he did for me, like he did for Ali. He wants to do for all of us here. But he's a gentleman. He's a gentleman. He's not like some of the salesmen who will put their foot in your door He's not going to barge into your life. Instead, he waits to be invited. <coughs> and the question is, in this Easter Sunday, will we, who have not yet committed our lives to Jesus, open our lives and say, Risen Lord Jesus, you died for me. Come and live in me. If we do that, guess what? We'll go out of here different people to walk in the presence and with the presence of the risen Christ. I'm just so delighted to see you here this morning. I apologize again for the hitches, most of which I caused. I apologize for them. But I pray today that you'll have see beyond the hitches 
the fact that we're in the presence of a Christ who was died, who died for you and who lives for you and you'll invite him to be your saviour. Friend.